Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 51 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is Brinsley Schwarz, namesake of the band Brinsley Schwarz and guitarist for Graham Parker and The Rumor, which means he played with last week's Carol Pop guest, drummer Steve Goulding. But first came Brinsley Schwartz, the British pub rock outfit that he formed with his schoolmate, Nick Lowe, its primary sing-songwriter. Lowe's What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, made famous by Elvis Costello and the Attractions, was originally a Brinsley Schwartz song. So were Rock Pile's Play That Fast Thing One More Time and Lowe's solo hit Cruel To Be Kind, though the Brinsley Schwartz version of the latter wasn't released at the time of its recording. You gotta be cool to be kind in the right measure. Cool to be kind is a very good sign. Brinsley Schwartz, which also included keyboardist Bob Andrews and drummer Billy Rankin, evolved from a band called Kippington Lodge. Why did they take on the name of their guitarist? Brinsley Schwartz, the person, explains it as best as he can. The whole situation is tricky now, because when he releases solo albums, they have to be billed as Brinsley Schwartz himself. The band, Brinsley Schwartz, got off to an inauspicious start when a scheme to publicize its first self-titled album became one of the rock media's all-time fiascos. The idea was to fly the band and an international array of journalists to New York City for Brinsley Schwartz's Fillmore East set opening for Van Morrison. Schwartz takes the story from there, offering a detailed TikTok of what went wrong and how. Back in England, the embarrassed band set aside its visions of grandeur and gave birth to the British music trend known as pub rock. My urging, Schwartz explains what exactly is pub rock and how Brinsley Schwartz became the original pub rockers with a genre associated with the type of R&B and country-inflected rock they played. The band kept getting better, with guitarist and occasional songwriter Ian Gom joining for 1972's Silver Pistol. The acclaimed Nervous on the Road, released later that year, includes such standout tracks as Lowe's Surrender to the Rhythm and Don't Lose Your Grip on Love, both covered this year by Elvis Costello and his throwback band, Rusty. Don't lose your grip on love Don't lose your grip on love Take me higher and higher Like a jet plane flies But don't lose your grip on love Dave Edmonds produced 1974's The New Favorites of Brinsley Schwartz, which includes Lowe's super catchy The Ugly Things and kicks off with Peace, Love, and Understanding. So funny about peace, love, and understanding. Schwartz recalls his first impression of hearing that song, but the album, like most of them, wasn't commercially successful, and Lowe left to form Rock Pile with Edmonds and to embark upon a solo career. Schwartz and bandmate Bob Andrews got together with the guitarist Martin Belmont and the rhythm section of Andrew Bodnar and Steve Goulding to form a new band, The Rumor. They generated their own material, which became the basis of their 1977 debut album, Max, the title being a Fleetwood Mac joke. Think about it. But The Rumor became best known as Graham Parker's backing band through five albums, starting with 1976's Howlin' Wind, which was produced by Schwartz's recently estranged bandmate, Nick Lowe. How did that go? Who came up with the guitar parts that Schwartz played on those records, such as the riff to the hit Local Girls off Squeezing Out Sparks? And why did the band split up after 1980's The Up Escalator? 
Short still played on several Parker albums after that and co-produced the Mona Lisa Sister and Human Soul. He also was part of the rumor reunion with Parker for albums in 2012 and 2015, as well as an appearance in Judd Apatow's This Is 40. But Brinsley Schwartz, the artist, has been concentrating on his own music of late, playing most of the instruments on two solo albums, Unexpected from 2016 and last year's Tangled. On songs such as You Can't Take It Back and He Takes Your Breath Away, he demonstrates his still sharp songwriting chops and a continued dedication to the rootsy rock that inspired his work from the beginning. Schwartz knows how to tell a story and he's got some great ones here, including a tale of a fluke injury suffered when Brinsley Schwartz, the band, was touring with Paul McCartney and Wings. He also offers much insight into the life of a working musician. So grab yourself a pint and enjoy this carol pop conversation with Brinsley Schwartz. He takes your breath away. He knows just How would you describe what pub rock is? And at what point when you were playing, did you think, oh, we're pub rock? Because it probably wasn't in 1970 when you put out that first album. So I think, I, I don't know, 71, 72, that's when, that's when I think it was. It could have been a little bit later. Anyway, coming off of that New York thing that was pretty disastrous for everyone um, that we did in 1970. We got better gigs than we'd had. We didn't have to pay to get on them. Uh, we were moving up the ladder a little bit and uh, found that playing the slightly bigger gigs and bigger college-type college places didn't suit us, didn't suit us the music that we were starting to play, which was more R&B, R&B as it was then, uh, based. Um, New Orleans, you know, all that kind of... And uh, we were just wondering, you know, how to make make it better f- for ourselves when Dave, our manager, and Nick, uh, Nick Lowe, came back to the house where we all lived together um, in northwest London and um, said, OK, we've got to go down and see this band playing. And so the next week we went we went down to a, a pub called the Tally Ho um, and saw an American band called Eggs Over Easy, who, as it turns out, were simply doing what bands did in America. They played in bars, and that got them, you know, they moved up from from that. That wasn't happening in England. There weren't any bars, pubs, uh, just a couple here and there that usually sort of folk folk places, um, folk music places. And so this was new to us and uh, new to pretty much everybody else as well. And so we thought, well, let's try that. So we managed to persuade the the Tally Ho pub owner or manager to let us play for nothing the one day the next week. Um, and that's what we did. And that went really well. So we persuaded him to let us play every week. And then Dave and... Dave Robinson and I went round uh, pub owners in London trying to persuade them to let us play for nothing in their pubs, uh, which we did. And we had a, a point at which they started paying us, which we hit very quickly. And that's that said, it was just us looking for somewhere to play R&B music, uh, 
which which is how we were. It was so we we played pop songs too, just stuff that we liked playing. And um, after a while, after a, a, a two three months, it got serious. It got the, there were more people outside the pubs than could get in. It was rammed everywhere. And was, so I think that was seventy two. It was summer. Uh, so people could hang out in the street. It wasn't pouring with rain. It was a beautiful summer, and uh, it, it took off. And then the press uh, decided that it was worth talking about it and called it Pub Rock, uh, at which point we said, OK, well, they've named it, and uh, that's not what we're about, so we'll stop. <laughs> and so we stopped. So it, uh, so it literally was that pe- the bands weren't playing in pubs until you started doing this? No, yeah, that's right. We started it. We there, there were no pub pubs to play in. Nobody played in pubs except for Exo uh, Eggs Over Easy, um, who we, we saw. But there weren't any pubs playing live music. Certainly not rock bands. And um, yeah, so we and and we built up the circuit by hassling pub managers to let us do it. They they, they didn't get it at all. They thought we were barking, um, but. Uh, it it worked. It was good fun, and we loved it. And then somebody called it pub rock, so we thought, okay. Well. You could have been playing, you know, f- you know, twenty minute jam sessions in pubs, but we were playing this kind of R and B inflected rock and roll, and so that's what be- pub rock became. So basically, because of that's what you were playing in pubs, that's became the definition of pub rock. Yeah, but uh, after a few months, uh, there were a lot of other bands. There were a lot, a lot of bands in in London who were also looking for somewhere to play. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they stepped in quite happily. And and then, and then um, punk rock started also in from the from the you know, from, from the pubs. They played in pubs. That's, so pub rock, there isn't such a thing as pub rock. Pub rock is simply any music that any band can <laughs> want to play in a pub. There's that's, an entire Wikipedia entry about pub rock and describing yeah. what it is and Dr. Feelgood and this and that and the aesthetic and this. It's so... Yeah, it's not... A, if, if musically, that there's only one thing that I can th- actually think of that, that is different between pub rock and and rock which is what was was before it if you, if you like and that is the lack of guitar solos so rock had a lot of theatrical type guitar playing going on and pub rock didn't pub rock was just down to the bone it was what rock and roll music right was well, and also at the time you were doing this, this is when England's like, aren't like sort of the Swede and Slade and all those glam bands were kind of yeah. popular at that point. So I would think that, you know, you guys just dressing like ordinary people going into a pub and playing music would also be, you know, sort of an antidote to that. Yeah, that was all all through the through the, the TV and the radio. That's what the TV and radio were, were doing. So Top of the Pops. Um, although we got, we managed to, to actually get on top of the props much later with Graham Parker. But yeah, it was just a, that was just a different thing, a completely different scene. People, you couldn't really do both until somebody. So who had the first pub rock hit? I love the sound of breaking glass. The, what, at well, what point does it stop in he, pub he, rock? He didn't play. He didn't play that, nor did we play that song in pubs. So. So I guess it's not pub rock, but I don't know. It's 
it was just a it was just a uh, a thing that that took off and it was the press that named it um, right and we weren't trying to to do anything except for have a good time and still afford to be a band so so you met nick Lowe growing up like you were in school with him right we were at school yeah at what point how did you guys get together sort of musically well we were we were in what we call a public school which is a private school uh where things were were not we're not very happy let's put it that way there's a lot of abuse and beatings and stuff not not a good um and so and so we were kind of in the years that rebelled um there was a the school the school was it was like an old lots of big old houses um made up the school and there were grounds and um the the hall the school hall had a stage and underneath the stage was a room and so we used to sneak out um midnight or later and uh, go to the school the stage under the school hall where we'd practice a whole bunch of us would play music in whatever way we could and um do illegal stuff cider was the the big thing um and um i mean we would have if we'd been caught you know that was it's very serious um and uh nick's father um was uh group captain uh in uh in an air force base in germany and nick hassled us kids a five gig tour of the base um and we went so we went on holiday we went on a summer holiday and uh, huh. played in these places um and that's how we started and we had very little in the way of equipment or anything it was a schoolboy stuff so when i left left school um i got asked by a guy who found out that i played guitar and could sing and got invited to play a band and gradually that band morphed bit by bit into the band that was the Brinsley's. Yeah, you had a band called Kippington Lounge, is that what it was? No, Lodge. It's the house where my parents lived. Um, and uh, I, I lived there, obviously, and um, gradually members of the, of the band who came from the schoolboy band uh, they came down and lived with us so that uh, we could, you know, we could form a band. Nick came, another, uh, another a keyboard player called Barry Landerman came, he left, and uh, we found Bob Andrews. And we all lived together in my parents' house, which was called Kim hmm. Floyd, for a bit. Now, how did you decide to name the band after you? Uh, that was the others. They decided... Uh, we were supposed to have a a group meeting round at Nick and Bob's flat, uh, and and discuss it and choose a new name. And when I got there, they'd already chosen, and <laughs> it was three to one. So I was I, I couldn't influence that at all. They said you can leave if you like. We're still calling it Prinsley Schwartz, and um, so so it was a done deal. What was what did they say was the reason for naming it that? They thought it was a good idea. 
I mean, it's distinctive. It's distinctive for you too. I would think for you, it might be confusing just because when you hear it, are people talking about the band or talking about you? But yes, well, that did, that didn't really become a problem until until now, until the last few years when I've released my own records. So I'm just looking at my my first solo record. It says Brinsley Schwartz himself on it. <laughs> Where everything you, comes out from the record company says that says my name says the man, not the band. Where they tr- they've tried to disassociate myself from myself, my former self. You made reference to this, uh, which is sort of a, a, a notorious publicity uh, incident with with that band. But I'm, I'm not sure that everyone listening to this is going to know that story. So. What was that? Was that 1970? Was it the record company that came up with this? Like what was, they were, they were no. flying all these journalists into New York. You, you tell the story. Okay. I'll, I'll do this as short as I can. because I know you're sick story. of it, but. Uh... I'll do it as, I'll do it as short, short as I can. Kivington Lodge. We were not doing very well. We had a manager who didn't really uh, think on the same lines as us. We made five singles for EMI records um, one of them was was called a radio hit, the first one, um, and then they went downhill from there. Um, so we got to a point where we would like to um, change managers, change the name, change everything. Uh, and the manager we found was Dave Robinson, who put an ad in the Melody Maker, which was the, like was the English version of the Village Voice, if you like, and. He, what he said in the in the advert was we we fitted the bill of what he required, but also he sounded like the kind of management we were looking for, so um, that we got together, and um, that happened. And so the idea was to try to get some gigs, try to get some gigs better than the ones that we were we were playing, um, and look towards getting a, a, a record deal that would suit uh, what we were beginning to play. Um, and that that went okay. And then it reached that point, which was the same for everybody in those days, is if you didn't, if you couldn't pay to get yourself on a tour or on a, a series of gigs in colleges, uh, then you didn't get the, the gig. You had to pay your way on and the way people got around that or tried to get around that was to do some do a stunt of some description and that would start off with like play a gig and invite the press to you know to the speakeasy something like that and then then it got it started to have to be more than that so dave robinson's company fame pushes which was actually just dave robinson pretty much he was with an, a group of little companies that were which was sort of overseen by one one guy, um, and uh, they, there was a uh, there was Barney Bubbles who who was, became a, uh, an album cover artist right. of of note note and uh, Forbidden Fruit, a little clothes store up in in London. Uh, there was a guy who who uh, wanted to be a film producer director. Um, and it was him that I, I think that came up with the first part of that idea. The idea was to fly the world's press to see us play at a prestigious gig in New York. Um, or well, actually in the, in America, but which turned out to be New York. So it wasn't our, our idea. It was floated to us 
And we said, well, okay. <laughs> how, how on earth is that going to happen? And the, what, what Dave Robinson did was he phoned up, uh, it's Bill Graham, isn't it? Who did, who, right. It was the Fillmore yeah. East, right? Fillmore East, yeah. He phoned him up on Friday evening or late Friday afternoon said, I have a band um, and uh, they've made an album. Um, I've got, I'd like to come and talk to you about uh, getting a gig at your, saying we want to fly the world's music press to see us play at the Fillmore East or West. And Bill Graham said, um, okay, send me the tape. I'll give it a listen and get back to you. So Monday morning when Bill Graham walks into his office, Dave is sitting there with the tape. And Bill Graham says, how can I help you? And Dave said, I called you Friday evening about my band. You want to hear the tape? I brought it. <laughs> <laughs> Looked at him and, and took the tape and said, I don't miss, need to listen to the tape. You got the gig. Just let me know when. Dave was really good at that sort of thing. He, he could so everything's on. going great so far. That's right. It all, it all came together. We had, we had uh, rehearsal time at Fillmore East uh, booked. Um, we understood that the way the Fillmore East worked. We had three rows of seats for the press, permissioned for, for their photographers to come and use cameras. Um, and we had uh, a plane uh, booked to fly from Heathrow and uh, the press, wherever they were, got to Heathrow and then got on the plane. The plane went wrong. Oh, well, I guess we should go further. So three days before the, the gig, three or four days before, uh, three of us, uh, myself, Bob and Nick, went to the American embassy to, to sort out our visas. Um, and in those days, you had to have a return act. Uh, and our return act was Love. And I can never remember his name. The singer of Love he got laryngitis. Arthur Lee? Arthur Lee, yes, that sounds. He got laryngitis and they cancelled their gigs in England. So that meant our gigs in our permission to go to the States was cancelled too. And this is all musician union stuff. So um, you needed to have someone else coming. It needed to be like a straight up trade. That's yeah. kind of crazy. Yes, it's a musicians' union. Right, um, it, it was their deal. So, um, we that was on on Monday uh, of the week that we were playing Friday and Saturday. Uh, so Dave said, "Okay, um, I'll sort this out." Uh, and his way of sorting out was to put us on a plane. Well, he he was on the plane to to Toronto, where because we're Commonwealth countries, we'd be let in. Um, we were let in for a day. We went to the American embassy and filled out the forms. And um, it came to that question, have you ever been re refused a visa to the United States of America before? And I said, said Dave, what do, we, what do we answer this? He said, just answer no, it'd be fine. So we said no, handed our forms in to this, to this guy. Um, behind his desk, and he said uh, uh, it'd be about an hour and a half. So we went back an hour and a half later. He calls our numbers. We go up. He said, said something like, I have a million-dollar computer back there that tells me that you guys were refused a visa 
to the United States yesterday in London. <laughs> and so uh, we we sort of looked around nervously and thought, oh, it <laughs> looks like we've been rumbled. And he said, and this is something he said in an American, strong American, he said, you guys want to go to the US of A, no chance, and threw all <laughs> off the across the desk, and that was that. And then, so we went back to the hotel where we hung out while Dave did whatever he did. Um, and come Friday mid-morning, we were back at the USA Embassy. It got to that question. We all wrote yes, and the dates and everything, handed the things in. Same guy who was not happy that we were there and also not happy that he'd been told that we would be to be passed, that we would get visas. Um, but anyway, so he he came back out from the, the room at the back and put our papers right at the front of where the, like the glass screen is, right at the front, and looked at us and then walked away. It was one o'clock and therefore his lunchtime. <laughs> okay, two o'clock on the dot, he comes back, calls our numbers, pushes our papers underneath the glass to us and turns away. So we had our visas. Welcome uh, to America. Welcome to America, yeah. So we thought, right, we're, 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 we're there, we're going. We're going to do it, let's go. And um, round about that time, there was a ground crew strike on the eastern seaboard. As you know, it's no planes flying. So we couldn't go because we couldn't get on a plane. So we hired a little Piper six-seater with this little Japanese-Canadian pilot who flew us to New York. Uh, on the way, he, he landed at Buffalo, and we said, what, what's happening? And he said, I just have to do passport checks, uh, you know, just a uh, checks. So we all got our passport. Yeah, we got these and handed them over. So great, we got them. And uh, he says, okay, I won't need that. I come here all the time. So I just say you're an American businessman. And that's what he did. He went in, he was five minutes, came out again, and we took off. So, so we, need, we needn't have got visas. If we'd only known about this guy, we could have done it without visas. But, but anyway, um, we landed, uh, it was about six o'clock in the evening, on stage at quarter past seven, I think. So that's and, the same day? Yeah, the same day, Friday Evening, early evening, um, and we rushed to the to the gig uh, in limousines. We had a limousine each. Um, my guy was great, playing great music um, on the on the radio stuff that I'd never heard or very little of in England. Other Jimi Hendrix records, other than Hey Joe, right. <laughs> so, Hey Joe in England, but didn't realise there was a. Uh, an album full of stuff. Anyway, got to the gig, um, got to the dressing room. My my ears had freaked out. I couldn't hear very much at all. And before we knew it, we were on stage at the Fillmore East, um, played the gig, and uh, which was okay. What you'd expect after what we'd been through the last week. No sound um, check or anything. No, no sound check, no. And just walked on stage. So we afterwards uh, we went down okay, you know, um, better than we we thought it was going to be. But 
Um, so it was okay. And then um, we were upstairs in the dressing room and Nick came in and said, uh, you guys got to come down and see this. So we all went downstairs, side of the stage, where we watched Van Morrison and his band, that would be the Astral Weeks band, and re realised very rapidly that uh, we needed to be very, very much better than we were, that there was stuff that we were not aware of, hadn't heard. And um, so we did another gig after another show after that and two shows Saturday. The What happened to the press was completely disastrous. The plane that, that was hired uh, was from Aer Lingus. Dave had sorted that out months in advance and then at the beginning of that week while while we were we're in the in the fiasco getting visas um he called up Aer Lingus just to check that everything was okay for the plane and they they said what plane and they said the one that we that we rented for 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 Friday and they they there was laughter and they said oh so we thought that was a joke <laughs> so, so they had to scramble to get an aeroplane together the aeroplane um, developed a landing gear fault uh, which was supposed to be fixed as it took off so it landed again in, in at Shannon Airport where it got fixed apparently and then it took off again but then it failed before it could get off the ground and it was fixed again so the press at this point had been hours hours at Heathrow hours waiting for the plane hours on the plane before it took off and the only thing that was available to them once they'd gone through um, passports and and uh, you know into the waiting lounge was drink there wasn't anything else. They landed at Shannon Airport where there was only Guinness and whiskey. Um, so by the time they got to uh, Kennedy, they were, they'd been drunk a few times or they'd been drinking a while. We kind of know this because we got the bill. <laughs> uh, so they, they were late. Um, by the time they reached, well, the way they got there was there were, I think, 22 Cadillac limousines ready to take them to the Fillmore. But it was all late. So instead of them arriving in mid-morning and having a leisurely journey, it was Russia. And so it was pandemonium. Four of the the Cadillacs crashed and didn't make it. <laughs> it was, there was a 16 motorbike, police motorbike. Um, it was like a cavalcade, um, pr almost presidential, <laughs> you could say. Um, and... Uh, so four of them crashed. A bunch of them decided not to bother because they're all, you know, they'd had enough. Uh, so they went back to the hotel where they they drank more and then crashed out. Um, and the camera people who'd who'd been told that they would be okay to take cameras in, uh, by the time they got there, uh, there were people in already who had cameras who 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 had had them taken away you know you, there was a, a rule no cameras so the 
the guys at the film were east thought that our our people were in and so anybody who turned up with a camera met with a a definite no you can't come in with that and that caused a few disturbances amongst the press and i know of at least two people cameras were smashed and uh, people kicked out also wow. the front three rows which was supposed to be for the press they were full and so so the the guy, the bouncers at, at uh, the Fillmore East said, oh, the Brinsley's people are in. Look, there they are. And uh, so a lot of them didn't get in, gave up at that point and went back to the hotel. And those who did, who were the, the you know, the music press, really. There were, there were other press who didn't stay. But um, Were these mostly British press you were flying in? Uh, no, there was from, guys from Australia, um, all over. Wow. People people applied. Press were asked, and they said, "Yeah, we'll." Um, we obviously had a limit. I think it was 150 odd, odd people. It's a lot. Yeah, so it was a disaster, a complete <laughs> and utter disaster. Um, and when we got back uh, to England, there were the headlines were um, British pop group failed or something. You know, something like that. A hundred thousand pounds was mentioned, um, and uh, it was it was all it was all a mess. So was um, it was it these drunken, angry journalists who were writing this stuff? Uh, yeah, that 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 what they wrote about was what happened to them, not what happened to us. They that that was the news story was that we spent all of this money for all of this stuff to go wrong. Um, so and that's. That's pretty much what the press, a lot of the press write about now. You know, I've been asked about this in the last six months with the release of Tangled. Um, I spoke to a lot of a lot of press, and apart from apart from one guy who didn't know what pub rock was, um, most of the questions were about about that. Um, period. So I've re- told this story. <laughs> well, so, so tell me this, how much did that impact you guys as a band? Like you, you come back and, yeah, and but, you've had all this happen, but did that sort of change the music you were making then in your approach? I mean, it let, obviously you ended up in pub rock. Yes, that's exactly what, that was the important thing. As far as we were concerned, we learned a lesson. Um, fame is fickle for us. <laughs> that's one good one. Yeah, we just decided that we had to play together. Um, And so we managed to rent a a big house in just outside London, well, north, northwest London, um, where we all lived with families and friends came, um, stayed with us and and uh, helped out stuff. It was just, you know, just. And we used to play every every night, jam every night. We used to jam James Brown records and all kinds of different people, New Orleans stuff, um, and play our own songs. Um, Redbone, we used to jam Redbone, funky funky things, the meters. And we, when we jam, if we started a James Brown lick from a you know off, off a record we'd play that for hours without changing nobody would change anything sit find the groove and sit in it and then for 
for an hour and then change two notes and everyone would go oh, two different notes there and, and we you know we'd learn and that's what we were doing we were learning how to play and so, becoming a much better band yeah that's what we were trying to do yes how much so so nick was sort of the the main songwriter all along right like how did yeah. you see like how did the song sort of evolve through all of this you think um well, Nick, Nick was really good at writing what you could say were instantly singable songs. He wrote great, great songs. Um, and and we tried to make great records out of them. That was, that was I think, our main failure, is we didn't manage to translate what was good about his songs and what was good about the way we played live onto a record for some reason, I, I don't know, I've thought about it, you know, I don't really know why, because I think we've all been involved in, in great records since. It was just something about us. Those yeah. records sound pretty good though. I like the, the first one I picked up was Nervous on the Road. And that's, that album sounds totally contemporary now. Like it doesn't sound dated. It's got good energy. It's got great songs. It's a really solid record. Uh, you know, the new favorites of, which is the last one, which Dave Edmonds produced and has got peace, love and understanding. That's a, you know, that sounds really yeah. good too. I mean, people always say the same thing about rock pile later. They would say, Oh, that, you know, the album, the album never captured what they sounded like live. So maybe that's just sort of part of the dynamic of that stuff. Yeah. I think, I mean, if, if you try to, if you try to work out why, why a record you've made is either not played or doesn't, doesn't get anywhere if you try to work that out then uh, i think you'll just end up not making any any records so graham graham was was the same graham parker's records broken the rumor they were great records but somehow i don't know if it's timing whether we looked wrong you know it's it's very difficult to know why things you know they're all they're all great records. Stand up with any other great records, and and uh, you can sing them. But I, you know, sure. sort of, you just wonder, okay, why did that not do better? Was that something you were wrapped up in at the time, like when you would release an album, or and would you think, oh, this is going to be our commercial breakthrough? And was that something that was sort of weighing on the band? Um, no. I, I, we made rec I think we made records and played uh, all in one one go. We were just going along. So we were playing. Then it was time to make a record. So we made the record, but we were playing probably at the same time. And then we were playing again. And we I think we making the records quite quite a few of them. We just played what we played. Nobody sat down to, and thought, well, maybe this isn't the right thing as a record to do this little bit here maybe that you know we we just it's just something you you learn i saw um niall rogers um uh, was talking uh, did a there was a tv program featuring him talking about records that he produced and he had he had rules 
rules that I never crossed my mind in all all the time. One of his rules was the first the song is called the same as the first line, <laughs> and if you so when he produced "Let's Dance" for David Bowie, that wasn't didn't start with "Let's Dance." It it was a different the song was arranged differently, and it was him. He said. Okay, we're going to do this instrumental bit at the beginning, and then you're going to sing "Let's Dance." And if you think about it, that's actually a really good idea because it's the hook straight away. Sure. You know, work to it. It's it's there, and the same with Le Chic. That was the first. That's what it was called. That was the first thing, and it was you know, it was interesting. I never thought about writing songs where the first rule was it's got to be called. Hmm. What the first line is. So I've I've just finished writing a song called Every Day, and the first line is Every Day. There you go. Yeah. Do you have a favorite of those albums, like where you thought it came together the best of the Brinsleys? So, and then we'll then we'll move on to to Graham to, to the rumor, but uh, Brinsley albums. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Please don't ever change. I guess is is different. I'd say that's my favorite. I haven't played these for donkey's years, so I'd seen somewhere that. So Elvis Costello, by the way, he just put out an EP this year with his, with his. He had his band Rusty before he did his own solo stuff, and he covers two two Brinsley songs on it. He covers um, "Surrender to the Rhythm" and uh, "Don't Lose Your Grip on Love," and it's like there's six songs, and two of them are that. And in fact, when I saw him, he played in town. I uh, actually played in my hometown, uh, and with Nick opening and uh, he came, they came out to their version of surrender to the rhythm. So the first thing that these thousands of people in this outdoor venue heard was their cover of this Brinsley song. Wow. <laughs> Why aren't I rich? <laughs> when, when Nick brought in uh, what's so funny about peace, love and understanding, did you have any idea that the kind of life that that song would have? No, I don't think I have ever thought thought like that. I liked it. That was that was all that mattered to me. You didn't think there's a classic for our time? So I'm a guitar player, you know. So I'm, <laughs> being a songwriter thing, that's you know, that's much more recent. But I don't think I paid uh, a, an awful lot of attention to the lyrics of songs that were either either the band I was in, or um, the country. I liked American music, so lyrics that I like are like uh, Donald Fagan lyrics, mm. Little Feet lyrics. I'm a Stevie Dan Little Feet fan. I have been so once once English once we got past the Beatles. So I, I started with the Shadows. That's English instrumental. Right. But that's I fell in love with guitars. Just wanted to play guitar. And the rest of it didn't matter to me at all, as long as I I wasn't destitute, I guess. But I but I I'm, I managed to survive um, and and carry on playing guitar. That was so. The Beatles were my favourite band for for a long time when I was a kid, um, and and a lot of the bands that that recorded their songs or recorded songs like their songs and at some point i guess it was around 70 
69, maybe 68, 69. When was Crosby, Stills and Nash when their first album came out? That was a big game changer for us. Um, and then the and then the band. Right. So for, for a good few years, you know, I, that, I was that's what I was listening to, and that's what I was trying to. So when you're a musician and you and you you have a music that you like, that's kind of what you're trying to make yourself. So at some point, uh, Graham Parker said to me, came to me and said, "Okay, stop playing Robbie Robertson bloody licks on my record. Listen to me." <laughs> and handed me Two Little Feet and one Steely Dan album. And so I started with a Steely Dan album, which I hated. Which I, one was it? It must have been Can't Buy a Thrill, I guess, but I hated it. And But Graham had said that I should listen to it, so when the record stopped, I, I put the needle on at the beginning again and listened to it again. And about the third time in, I was just completely gone. I, I started to know know the, the lyrics started to know the music and and never never looked back and at some point graham has said has said to me why don't you stop playing steely dan licks on my record <laughs> so well, that, that's his fault yeah damn right yes um so i think i think i paid at some point i i switched i stopped liking english music uh, and seemingly in in general, but uh, you know, I had I you know two two daughters who who grew up with the police and Adam and the Ants and all of that stuff. Whenever that was, and so I had to I listen I had to listen to that because we were in the same house, and um, so I so I actually I actually liked that better quite a lot of that more than I like what came before from from England so what yeah I guess once cream and all of that had happened rock music sort of went away unless it was America yeah and I could hear that I the, the first song on the first Brinsley's album uh you could hear these sort of Crosby Souls and Nash kind of harmonies on there like yeah that's right that's, that's, that's yeah, I think we'd. I think we Nick had written some songs, and we were starting to make the record, and then we heard Crosby, Stills and Nash. Thought interesting. Yeah, we can we can sing harm, harmonies. I was in I was in a choir at, at school. I you know, I loved singing harmonies. Singing harmonies in a in a small group of people around a microphone. Oof, get chill shivers all the time. It's amazing feeling. So, so what was the end of Brinsley Schwartz as a band, and then how did you sort of transition into the rumor? Nick decided that uh, he thought to call it a day, um, which was a bit like getting divorced. It was we'd been a family for five five years. Odd. Um, none of us had anything. Uh, I had I I left with a guitar, an amplifier, and a couple of speakers, and. Um, that was pretty much it, and um, not knowing what to not to do, uh, some friends uh, from a band called Chilly Willie. Um, they they uh, they lived in Ch in Chelsea and said, uh, "Can't come down. You you know, just uh, we'll find you a place." 
sort of thing. And we we managed to inhabit a council a house called a prefab, which were they were they were built just after the war. And uh, we cleaned it up and moved in. And about and somebody somebody uh, ratted to the council. And uh, about a week later, we were moved out by the council. And um, pretty much we were going to be on the street unless we found somewhere. And my parents put us up, took us in. So I lived, lived with them. And um, I, I did nothing. I, 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 learned, I tried to learn to play sax. I bought, a, I bought a, um, an old car that had been done up by by somebody who worked at the Ford factory and it was done to uh, race specs. He, he said, don't, don't start off in first gear, you'll break your neck. That was, so I, I had that, fiddled around with that and, um, and, and did nothing. And then one day, um, oh, I, I was writing a bit, I was writing songs a bit, um, and then Dave Robinson phoned me up and said, um, he told me he'd, he'd got a studio together uh, at the, in the attic of the Hotananka, which was one of the pubs that Pub Rock um, was, you know, was famous for. Um, and uh, well, what, he, what he was doing was he was asking anybody who wrote their own songs, they could come and record them at his studio free of charge, but if if uh, it turned out that that uh, the song was usable and that Dave could locate a, a deal for, so he's looking for singer songwriters, really. And he said, "So I got this guy. I think you're going. I think you'll like him. I think you'll, you it'll really suit you. Have fun." And uh, Martin will be playing. Uh, Bob will be playing, and uh, so that's Martin Belmont and Bob right. Andrew, um, and. A uh, bass player and drummer from a band called Bonton Roulet, who had just broken up, and Graham. Um, so he's got two or three songs. And so I went went down. Now, I don't remember anything at all. It's it's like a blank completely about what we played, what the songs were called, what they, what they were. I don't remember that at all. What I remember is afterwards uh, when we were packing up. Uh, stuff and they were playing playing the tracks back. I can remember thinking, well, that was that actually was really good fun. I wonder if anybody wants to do this again. So I I tentatively said, you know, that, that was good, wasn't it? That was pretty good fun. And everybody said, well, yeah, yeah. So I said, well, maybe we could do it some more. Maybe we could find somewhere to play and get together and just play whatever we felt like doing. And everybody said, yeah, okay. And then that happened basically because Martin found uh, some friends of his who ran a pub in southeast London um, who let us play uh, during the afternoons in the pub. Oh, pubs used to shut in the afternoons. And, um, for nothing, our only, what we owed them was that we, if we did a gig, we would do our first gig at their pub, uh, which, which we did. Um, so we we went every day, every, um, except for Saturdays and Sundays. I had a little car and drove around South South London, picking up picking some of the guys up, and we'd go and and practice. We practiced 
stuff that we like playing. We practice songs, other people's songs that we liked, and we practice um, the songs that pe- some of us were writing. So Bob was writing a few songs, and that most of those songs a- appeared on Max, the Rumours' first album, by right. that was without Graham. Um, and then, and that was going on. We were getting to the point where we thought, well, we you know we could maybe do a quiet gig somewhere and uh dave called up and said you know that guy who you you guys played on the demo well i've got him a record deal and the record company want you to to be you know to back him on the on the album and we should do some touring so we were still in our be very quiet and not make a big fuss um mode um so we said yeah okay we'll we'll do one album and one tour and a year later, I'd had 13 days off. Hmm. And we did two albums and toured incessantly. Yeah, we played the first gig at, at Newlands Tavern, as we we promised, and then started touring. You kind of set up a sit, uh, situation sort of like the band, right? I mean, like you, because, you know, you, you come in and you're sort of idolizing the band, and, you know, even in, when you're in the you know, Brinsley Schwartz, the Schwartz as well. And then um, now you have The Rumor, which is your band, but then you're also playing with Graham Parker. And at the beginning, the idea was that you'd sort of do both, right? That you'd have your rumor records and then your Graham Parker and the rumor stuff. And then it seems like the Graham Parker stuff sort of took everything over. Yeah. That, so, so if you don't have a strong idea about what you want to do, how you're going to move forward and stick to it, then you end up doing whatever somebody else's idea of, of how it should go forward. And we were we were because we'd all just broken up from bands that had been together for quite a long time, and it's you know break, bands breaking up not not an, not the easiest thing to get to get past. You sort of left wondering what, what am I going to do now? There's a big sort of hole in front of you. Um, so it was Dave. Dave had the idea. He had the motivation. And he had the, the push. So whatever, basically whatever he said was what we did. Um, for a for a year, I think it was it was either it must have been early seventy seven. We made Max, so we made Heat Treatment. I think we made that in in uh, Rockfield Studios out in Wales, and and not long after that, we made we made Max before we went on tour again. I think I was I was pretty ill during that, so I could have the dates wrong um but we were driven along by by dave and it was all it all went really well really so we didn't have any complaints but we we thought of being a band um as opposed to being a backing band um but the backing band thing happened and and, and no one was complaining it was, it was great Well, and you had this painful breakup of your own band, and then Howlin' Wind, you go to record that, and the producer was Nick Lowe, right? Yeah. So how was that? Well, Nick had a... I don't know if he had a conscious theory or a, a conscious method that he'd, he'd thought out, um, but he left the, the, the musical stuff mainly to us. So... 
so it was like a it was like a six piece band. Graham wrote the songs, but everybody put their own bits and little things into it. Um, and Nick's idea was to keep everybody happy. So after we after we do a take, after discussion and fiddling around with bits of the song and everything, we do a take, and, and Nick would press the the the, the talkback button and say, and say, great, great, that's great. Hmm. Uh, I think maybe just, just do it once more time, one more time, and um, and uh, and maybe watch out for that bit in the middle and everything. And so we do it again, and the button would go down, great, fantastic. You guys said, you want to come in? You know, he's he just made every, everybody think this was fun. That was it. I think that was his production technique. Yeah, I just talked to Steve Goulding and I was asking him about sort of the different producers uh, who worked with Graham Parker in the rumor. And he was saying that Nick, sort of what you were just saying, that he left you guys alone and encouraged you. It's, and then, then Mutt Lang came in for heat treatment. And he said, he said that somehow when something didn't go well, there would be like this blast of like white noise that would come into their head, headphones or something. Like if they, if they messed up, it would go or something like that. I don't know if you remember anything like that. But Mutt, Mutt Langer was was uh, the the most finicky person about uh, a beat being where it should be, a beat being on beat at any point. So the first thing that happened for me with Mutt Langer was that we, I I I used to put my gear in a different room from so I could turn it up. And make it sound like it like it sounded on stage. To me, I had I had it all together. I you know, didn't have a problem. Um, so I just needed to be in a separate room. So at Rockfield, there was a big room which had a table tennis table in it, and I was in a big high wooden ceilings. And um, so we played the first the first thing. We got it down so that we could go and listen to it. He said to me, what do you think of the guitar sound? And I said, it doesn't sound anything like it sounds to me. And Mutt said, okay, well, that's not surprising because there isn't a mic standing where you're standing. So let's go and do that. So he took me out back into my, my room and uh, he said, okay, where do you stand? So I stood where I stood. He got a microphone and put it right there. And he said, okay, I'm going to put this by where you, the way your right ear is facing, and it'll pick up all of the stuff that's coming from that up there in the ceiling. We'll put another microphone up in the ceiling so we get the sound of the room happening, and we'll put another mic. How far away from the speaker do you think? I said, well, how about three feet? So you put a mic in front of the speaker three feet. If you listen, if you look and read about about or watch even as uh, the look at the mic placements on different stages. You, you know, all of these people are very experienced and nobody puts a mic anywhere, anywhere near as far away from a speaker as that. But what you do then is what you're micing is the room, right? not just the amplifier. And so we did it again and he said, okay, come in, listen. And then he said, what do you think? And I said, that's it. That's fantastic. That sounds like it sounds. And he said, okay, well, we know how to record you from, from now on. So there was a song that we did on Max, which was really typifies what Stephen was talking about, Mess Around, Mess Around With Love, uh, which 
which the Brezzes used to play, but we we recorded it for for Max. And it started off with a guitar thing, which went da 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 do ba 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 da da. And that's as far as I would get. You would press the button, okay, a little bit out there, so we'd start again. And two hours later, I went. He said, "Okay, let's start." Steve counted, and I went da. And that's the first note. And he put his finger on the button and said, okay, a little bit out there. And, I, and at this point, we had a word with him and said, okay, what we'd like to do is actually get from the beginning to the end of the song one time. <laughs> instead, of, instead of worrying about little, little fractions of beats that are, you think are, are out. And, so did you uh, record Max with Mutt Lang right after doing Heat Treatment? Yeah, it was, well, um, I would say it was really quite close after doing heat treatment, but it might have been, it might have been longer, longer than that. I was just don't, uh, but I, uh, and I was ill. I was really ill. Uh, yes. And then so when the band went I, on tour, I didn't go with them. So it must have been close. And then you had Jack Niche for uh, squeezing out sparks and you guys really sort of pared everything down. The horns went away, more of a sort of straight ahead rock. Uh, New wave yeah, record. One of the things about Max, I was going to say, is that that uh, when Mutt Langer had, so we went away, and he 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 did the production thing, um, and then and then we got to hit, to hear that we listened to it in stiff at Stiff Records with Dave, and uh, I can remember thinking, oh my god, this is just dreadful, and and I thought, and yet. I, I know if I say this is dreadful, everyone else is going to love it, and I'm going to I'm going to get it in the neck for being um, despondent and down about it. Um, and when it finished, Dave said, "So what do we think?" And Steve said, "That's dreadful." And I thought, "Right on, Steve. <laughs> Damn right it is, isn't it?" And um, so Dave said, "Yeah, that's what I think." And so we're going to remix it, and. Uh, we're going to do it in a studio in, in town. And um, Bob, I think Bob and Brinsley should produce it. Um, which, which again, that surprised me too. And that's what we, but that's what we did. Bob and I went and produced, remixed the album to how we thought it should sound. And still rate, rate that record as, as a great sounding record. Um, anyway, yes. So you were talking about, Oh, sorry, I went through the squeezing out sparks. Although with Max, the, the, the funny thing also with Max is that Fleetwood Mac had just put out rumors, so the rumor put out Max. That's the little joke there. That's that's right, yes. We had an, we had this great idea out outside uh, along uh, what's that road? That's gotta be the A4 into London. Um there's a big there's a big corner, and on this corner there's a one of those huge great billboards. And I used to drive past it to get to somewhere. I can't remember now. Um, and one day there, there it was. It said, "It said um, Fleetwood Mac's new album. It was called Rumors." Right. So it was called Rumors, and it said Fleetwood Mac's new album, Rumors. And we thought, well, one night we could get a couple of ladders and paint that out. So it says. Rumor, rumor, new latest album, Max. Um, huh. And then uh, luckily we didn't try that because we were being arrested and put in jail. But uh, yeah, it was, and, 
that was it was a, a joke yes yeah and then david bowie put out an album low and then nick Lowe put out his ep bowie with missing the e also so yeah well you guys had some yeah. thematic thematic uh, humor going on so yeah, yeah squeeze- we, well we had a sense of we had a sense of humor no it's good yeah. it's funny yeah. now when i saw the max thing i was like oh that's great um and you know, uh you know, no one else has said that to me in all this time nobody's really uh, spoke to me and said yeah i get i get that you did that because of fleetwood fleetwood mac and no one said that you know the other first person so squeezing out sparks horns are out more straightforward performance was that a good experience i mean it's a great record okay so recording the records when you you're when you're in inside it when you're inside recording you have lots of ideas um, which you excitedly put out and that can get a little bit over the top for the 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 one idea that somebody sh- should have the way that one one person namely graham what's his record to sound like and it had got to a Grand Parker and the Rumour album being that, that the Rumour had put input in um, uh, to to everything that, not, not everything, but a lot of what was happening musically. So um, the idea behind this was that we can get a producer uh, who was going to produce everything, who'll tell everybody what they need to play, what not to play, and we were just to keep quiet and do as we weren't told. Um, and that, and so we got in the studio with Jack Nietzsche um, and he said, okay, if everybody um, go get your sound and um, you know, make sure you're happy with where you are uh, and everything. And uh, so we spent a lot of time on that. And then Graham, I think myself and Bob weren't in the first set of a take of a, of a song. Uh, sometimes Martin wasn't, but I'm pretty sure that Steve and Andrew and Graham said Graham would sing the song, Steve and Andrew would play play with him, and uh, then one it would be one of us, one of our turns. The the people hadn't played on the on the basic track. And so when he when it was my turn, he he was very he was very nice, very cool. Said just get everything the way you want it, and um, well well you know we'll start at the beginning. And everything had been recorded, all of the tracks had were recorded to bass tracks. They all had stuff you could play along with, and um, so it came to the point. He said, "You happy?" I said, "Yeah, I'm okay." What I thought was going to happen was that a track would start and I would play along until either either the end or until I, you know, I didn't think it was going anywhere and I'd, they'd roll it back and I'd start again. And what he said to me was, okay, here we go. Take one. You've got one take. And, and then I heard Steve go, one, two, three, four. And I was, while he was counting, I was saying, sorry, how, how, what do you say then about one take? And then the song started. So I started playing. I played it all the way through to the end. And Chanichi, this is the talk back mic again. He pressed the button and said, Great, we'll go on to the next song. 
and he said, and get yourself ready and happy and everything. And then when they closed, he said, okay, we're going, uh, you have one take. And that's what I had. I had, I got hmm. one take of every song, except for, um, a lot of gets you twisted. Uh, passion is no ordinary word. And, I fluffed the end of the solo and he stopped the tape and I thought, oh, oh God, I'm, I'm not going to be on this, this track. And he said, okay, um, I get completely get what you're, you're trying to do, uh, so have another go. And so I got a second chance at that solo and I finished the song and everything, that was fine. And then that's what I did all the way through. And that was, that was it. So there's really no like band performance in there, but if you're doing the basic tracks and then just sort of doing it as yeah. overdubs, you're not yes. really in a room playing together. No, we were oft often not, to, especially to start with. I think different. I think we probably attempted different routines at different for different albums. Had the dynamic between Graham and and you guys changed over those albums? I haven't and, and didn't really think too much about. Um, about relationships uh, and musical relationships, apart from the stop playing Robbie Robertson licks on my on my albums, um, and yeah, you know, just talking in in general about music and and stuff. I pretty much always thought at the at the beginning. I think I was. I was really nervous of Graham. I thought, oh God, yeah, this guy really knows his stuff, writing great songs and everything. And I'm, you know, I'm, so I'm worrying about what I'm playing, nervous about what he might think about them and thinking that he was, you know, he, he must be, he must really know what he's, he's doing. And uh, turns out that he didn't know what he was doing and was thinking, God, these guys just come in out of the, out of the street and play all this great stuff. Without even, without even a, a buy or leave, you know. So he was he was kind of thinking the same thing that I was in a in a way, and it wasn't really until we started playing as a duo, which was three or four years ago, and and some of the stuff that that you know in the last tours that we had played, where everything mm. was much looser, much more fun, much light, much lighter. We were just we were going to enjoy it, whatever came out and everybody just did what they they did without any any worries it was completely different to how it used, used to be when it always seemed quite uptight and more uh, pressure yeah pressure maybe a little bit fractious you know difficult it was young men that's the thing it's, right. it's young men with angst versus old guys who have been there before and and uh know how to enjoy a beer you know it's, it's it was just a different experience and you know i think i don't know about any, anybody else but I, i'm pretty i'm pretty sure that graham and i got a lot closer as as friends uh in, you know in the recent years and then you did the up escalator and jimmy iving was brought in who's a very you know, like Stevie Nicks is producer. There's your Fleetwood Mac connection, um, and then and then the rumor broke up after that. Like, it did it just get too, I don't know, corporate or something, or like what what happened with that album and afterward? Uh, I think um, 
the business side of Graham's career had had got too much for him, um, and uh, he was getting married, and um, he he decided to stop, um, which left us without the beginning part of our, our name. So, uh, and we made uh, our third album um, at that point uh, by ourselves. We we toured. Uh, Bob wasn't with us anymore, but um, we the four of us toured, and then uh, it, it it sort of just sort of ground to a halt. So you know that, that happens; it just all the momentum goes, and then there's kind of no point in <laughs> you think, okay, what's next? And there isn't anything. So, yeah, that's that's when we we broke up. 1981, I guess. with Graham on some of the later records without the rumor as well. So you still came in and were part of that circle. I'd realized at some point that the only way I was going to get uh, a gig was to be in America. That I'd have, it would have to be somewhere over there. Uh, you know, I was, I was uh, not happening in this country, really. Um, so our agent... Uh, American agent, um, he was still working with Graham, and he he was downsizing his offices, and had a had had got a a loft space which was bare, and he wanted it made into a suite of offices. So he was talking to me, and I said, "I can do that. I just need to be there." And he said, "Well, I'll get you here." So I went over. I lived with Alan and did up his his loft space into a suite of of um, offices and everything past the new New York fire division rules. And, um, and that was, yeah, that was good. I was there for about, I don't know, eight or nine weeks. And I made two attempts. Well, I made one attempt to join a band who had advertised in the village voice for a, for a guitar player, and it said, wanted guitar player must be into Brinsley Schwartz. And <laughs> who else? I thought, that's me. <laughs> I'm that man. So I called them up and lied about who I was. And uh, But when I went to see them, they said, well, we can't have you in the band. And uh, so that didn't work out. Wait, did, then, did they say, we would say, we need someone who's into Brinsley Schwartz. We don't want Brinsley Schwartz. Yeah, that's right, yes. You have to be into me, not me. I mean, um, I would think that that's like your sort of, I happen to have Marshall McLuhan right here sort of moment. Like, I would think that, yeah. how could you, how could they not, how could they put that ad in the Village Voice and not hire you? I don't understand. Were they any good? Did, did we ever hear of them again? I don't think so, no. Oh, well, there you go. All right, see. Uh, um, uh, so uh, a couple of evenings before I was due to go back, um, Alan said he was going to, uh, have have dinner in in the in the city with with Graham and discuss the problem of of finding a lead guitar player. Um, he, did, he had the rest of the band, all American guys, 
uh, in, from New York, you know, really good guys. And um, they just couldn't find a guitar player that seemed to fit. So as Alan left the house, I said, don't forget to tell him that I'm here and I'm, I'm up for it if he wants me. And so when Alan came back and said, uh, well, I mentioned you. And Graham said, well, of course. Why did I not think of that? So, so I, I, I got hired again, um, if you like. But yes, I started playing again. Um, the album that they'd just done, I, obviously that was an album. Then he and I uh, worked together on four albums, four, three or four albums, before ev- everything changed again. When you when when you would be playing on those those records, whether with the rumor or later, what were you coming up with the guitar parts, or would, would he say, "Oh, I have hear this riff," like something like "Local Girls"? And I'm not sure if that's you or Martin playing that riff anyway. But that no 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 is that is that something Graham would come in with, or is that something that one of you guys would come up with? Okay, that he, he came up with that. That is me playing it, um, and he came up with the the tune. But um, the tune on Nobody Hurts You, that's that's me. I came up with that. Okay. So I used to listen to, he would always play the songs to us on acoustic. He'd get an acoustic guitar and sing the song. And I used to listen to little things that he did on acoustic guitar. So he played those chords. He didn't actually play that that line he played the chord that would have that would go and I so I I came up with a with a riff um for it from hearing that part of it it sort of comes from what he was playing and other times more and more in fact as as we went along I I would I would play solos that I could sing that it's not like it's not like I would so I play the play the chords and sing the song and then come to the solo, and whatever I hummed or heard in my head, that I would that's what I would remember and build the solos on. So I was trying trying to play solos that were part of the part of the song as opposed to playing a, a string of blues licks or or um, you know whatever right. rock rock and blues licks they're they're supposed to be melodies that are based around the way the song is so you've put out two solo albums in the last several years unexpected and tangled right yeah you and songwriting these are these are albums by brinsley schwartz himself yes <laughs> were you always writing songs or did you sort of step it up you know after a while and start thinking you know what i just want to write more i started off i used to write 10 songs a day when i was 13 or 14, I used to write songs incessantly. I could, I could not stop, none of them were any good. And they, they were almost started with uh, I Love You Baby or something. I don't know about everybody else in the band, but I think Nick's prowess at nailing a song um, kind of inhibited, certainly me, I, I, I attempted to write songs in the Brizzlers and just thought, yeah, that's just, that's just no good. Um, and I guess the first the first songs that I wrote that were any good were on Frozen Frozen Years is the name of the song. What's the that Frog Sprouts, Clogs and Krauts, the second rumor 
album has got three or four of my songs and the third rumor album's got three or four of my songs then i then i stopped um playing with graham uh, producing and stuff like that I, you know didn't really do much and then in 1990 i quit um and started repairing guitars became a guitar repairer and being a guitar repairer is really, really good. You get to noodle on guitars all day long in the, hmm. pretense, the pretense of fixing them. Well, I've got to play it to find out what's wrong with it, really. Um, but uh, being a, being in a music shop and, and being around other guitar players all day long, you listen to what they're playing, customers that would come up, come in, some fabulous guitar players, and you sort of hang around watching and listening, learning and stuff i just uh, things just would pop into my head things that people would would say there's a the song on unexpected um called beautiful loser beautiful loser was the the shop manager had a little band i actually played bass with them for a, for a bit he had a he his band was called Be- the beautiful losers and I, I started thinking about what is a beautiful loser and came up with my interpretation of that. And one day I said to him, so what do you think a beautiful loser is then? And he said, he, he, he said, looked at me and said, I think that's somebody who, who will do the right thing no matter what it means to them, what, what, how, how it could be total disaster for them, but they still do it because it's the right thing to do. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what I thought mm. it meant as well. And I'd already started writing the, the song. Um, but the song, so the song is in, in four parts. And the, the, the first verse is sort of about Margaret Thatcher, but about people who don't do the right thing, but pay for it in any case. So I, I would uh, just pick up little things and sometimes driving home, I would write a song. I, I, I wrote a couple of songs as I was driving. I had to keep stopping and writing down lyrics on a bit of note paper in the car because I just couldn't stop. And that all started with me hearing Two Against Nature by Steely Dan. Ah, there you Steely Dan again. Yeah. And I, I, I just... I couldn't stop playing that record, and within a week, I could stop writing songs. So. It's it's interesting. There, I've I've talked to several British musicians who loved Steely Dan, and like Bruce Thomas of the Attractions, said that he had to sort of like not tell Elvis Costello how much he loved Steely Dan because he was afraid he wouldn't get the gig. And yeah. and Dave Dave Gregory of XTC also like I both of them were. I was asking him like you know if you had to run out of your house, it was burning down, you had to grab one record. And I think their both of their first impulse was Countdown to Ecstasy. Which I thought was a really interesting. And I love that record too. It's like that sort of oddball in the Steely Dan catalog, but but yeah, Brits and Steely Dan, you know. Yeah, I know it's they're just uh, a really great for me. They're really good. I love uh, Fagan's voice. Has that slight edge of sarcasm and sneering that that Dylan has as as well. It's and they're musically phenomenal. The the last track on Two Against Nature has got this sax solo at the end. It's about I don't know. It's it's more than minutes 
long. It's long, and it goes around this circular chord sequence. And the first time I I heard that, I lasted about fifteen seconds. Got through fifteen seconds, and no, can't listen to this. Stopped it, and then went back to the beginning of the album. And it took. Well, one of the guys we were talking about it at the shop, and one of the other repairers, he said, "No, that's that's just a sensational solo. The guy is pouring out his heart on on saxophone. It's astounding." So I started to listen to it more, and in the end, I managed to like it enough to listen to the whole the whole thing. That's one of the things about Steely Dan. You have to you have to persevere because some of it's a bit. It can be a bit out there, not in a sort of melodious jazz way sometimes, but a, you know, a little bit. And they're very perfectionist in the studio, which has not sure. been your approach. I mean, it's not the approach of most bands to, to the, the way they nail down everything to such precise, uh, you know, measure. Um like you could you could assemble you know a totally different kind of Steely Dan type band and you would you know I mean on your solo albums all, did you perform all the instruments yourself? Um, I, I played all the guitars, all the bass, little bits of organ, little bits of drums. Um, but James Hallowell, uh, who whose whose studio it is, who does the production stuff with me. Um, he's a great keyboard player, so he plays piano and organ uh, on it. But yeah, most most of the instruments. Uh, didn't play the sax. There's a sax solo on George. Didn't play that. But and I and I play drums with my hands. But you haven't been tempted to uh, put together some sort of Steely Dan like uh, outfit. Oh, oh, not not a not a Steely Dan outfit. No, there is one of those in in the UK. Um, the Stacy brothers, uh, Paul Stacy's guitar player, his brother's a drummer, and it's the brother, uh, it's his brother's, um, it's his band basically. But they, 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 I've been to see them once, and it's a big band, it's got brass and everything, three vocalists, and um, they sound pretty much like. A live Steely Dan, you'd expect. Huh. Uh, really on the on the money. So they play all of the solos and everything as they are. They're, they're really really good. Um, so for a couple of years, I don't know if they're still doing it. I don't hear much about about them anymore. Brinsley Schwartz, uh, the band, opened for Paul McCartney and Wings in 1973 in a British tour. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, astounding amazing he's a really nice man and uh he's fully aware of the effect that he has on people just by being anywhere near and um does his best to to help you through (laughs) the, the moments of being introduced to him for the first first time a quick little little story um there was a thing with frisbees. They would throw frisbees at, at the audience just after the show and before any encores. The crew would chuck frisbees in. Nobody could get a frisbee into the circle atop of the place. And one day they had a problem with a, with an amp, and so the weren't the roadies weren't there to 
throw frisbees. And I was standing, I used to watch from the side of the stage every night. And somebody gave me, can you frisbee? I said, yeah. I said, well, here, frisbee. So I started frisbee. And the first one sailed up into the circle. And I could get them up there there easily. And uh, I quickly became known as Mr. Frisbee um, or (laughs) the Frisbee King. And um, so I won't mention mention names here because... Not, not right um, but it was it was um paul mccartney's birthday party at a at the hotel which was in oxford and there was this huge great long table uh, with food and ice things and carvings and loads loads of stuff and this one person was was very excited and really pleased to see me as i walked in with my missus and um the next thing I knew, so I saw him, and then the next thing I, I knew was I was on the floor and my Dave, our manager, had a towel stuffed in my nose. And what had happened was my, my friend, in his excitement, frisbeed a china plate what? Through, through the crowd. It went through the crowd. I, you know, he was about 20 feet away so that, and hit me here. Oh, man. He's, he's indicating, my, indicating under his nose here. Yeah, split my top lip away from my from my nose, and I was taken to hospital. I had eleven torturous stitches, uh. impetus, just underneath here. How much that hurts? And uh, the guy said, the, the doctor said, "You oh, three stitches will be fine." And then I had to sorry, endure the three, and so I thought, "It's over, good." So yeah, maybe one more. And I had eleven. In, in the end, uh, at which point I said, maybe you could have, you could have injected me with something to get me through that. And he said, no, you'll be all right. Um, anyway, I went back to the hotel and this was three o'clock in the morning by then, I guess, something like that. And there was a, one of Paul's roadies sitting in the foyer waiting for me and said, um, you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm all right. A little bit woozy. And he said, uh, Paul would like to see you. And I said, oh, it's three o'clock in the morning. He said, yeah, it's okay. He's up. And they stayed up. Um, wow. Uh, so we went up to his, his room. Me and Linda were there waiting and uh, with everything that made evenings good fun in those days and um, was there for about half an hour or so. And uh, yeah, so really nice, really genuinely worried and uh, that, just want to make sure you're okay. Yeah. And that's how he was. <laughs> and probably was appalled that someone was flinging China plates at his birthday party. <laughs> I don't think he was there at the time. Wow. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. You've, uh, you've, you've told so many great stories and illuminated me about pub rock too. And uh, I really appreciate it. Um, it's been really a pleasure to talk to you and I hope to, do so again sometime soon okay thanks very much for having me it's been great enjoyed it you asked great questions that's all for episode 51 of carol pop thanks so much to brinsley schwartz for the vivid trip through pub rock's glory days with brinsley schwartz the band and then the years with graham parker and the rumor i encourage you to explore the brinsley schwartz catalog and enjoy the band's evolution and that of nick lowe's songwriting then move on to the rumor with and without Graham Parker and Schwartz's solo works. 
His most recent album, Tangled, and a newer song, It's Been a Long Year, can be found on his Bandcamp page, brinsleyschwartz.bandcamp.com. That's B-R-I-N-S-L-E-Y-S-C-H-W-A-R-Z, no T, dot bandcamp.com. Carol Pop, which is kind of the pub rock of music podcasts, is produced by the great Chris Swake. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.